and welcome to Media Mavens. This is episode 48. I'm Pam, and with me as always is Riley. Hello. Hello, Riley. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm okay. <laughs> I was okay. feeling so great this morning, <laughs> but feeling a little better now and excited to get started. All right. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Uh, so I'm very excited for our guest this episode. It is Catherine Cross. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited you agreed to come on. I've been a big fan of your writing and the few appearances on podcasts I've heard you on. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Black Mirror later on in our episode because Catherine just wrote a great article about the episode USS Callister. Uh, but before that, Catherine, do you want to talk about yourself a little bit? So I do a little bit of everything, it seems. I am an academic in sociology and information studies. I'm a gaming critic and a social critic. I do a lot of political writing as well for sites as varied as The Establishment and Rolling Stone. And I also uh, am a very active video gamer. Excellent. Yeah, I've seen, especially lately, it seems like you've been quite prolific. <laughs> This has been a rather busy month for me, yes. It, it happened a little unexpectedly, partially because I did a lot of writing in December and then it got caught in the uh, publishing pipeline glut due to the holiday right. season and then it just got all published at once. Um, <laughs> I also do a lot of uh, writing for tabletop role-playing games and I'm working on a couple of projects for that now as well. Oh, that's cool. Anything you can talk about yet <laughs> like what kind of settings or so i've already written a few adventures for the pathfinder rpg uh, oh nice an indie game called pig smoke which is basically a sort of a hogwarts style university where you all role play as magical college professors and all the drama <laughs> that that involves <laughs> i wrote a bit for that um and I also have a chapter on futuristic sexuality and reproduction and gender for the second edition of Eclipse Phase. So that's forthcoming. Oh, well, that all sounds very exciting. All right. So I guess we can get into what we've been up to recently. So Catherine, is there anything in the last week or two that's been blowing your mind? Oh, over the last week, I've mostly been... Uh, busy doing work. Uh, I was just in mm. Seattle. Uh, I was at OrcaCon, which is a oh. lovely local tabletop gaming convention themed around inclusivity. So that was a great deal of fun. And the rest of the time I've been thinking about politics. Uh, our government is shut down in America. So that's pretty fun. I saw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. That's uh, uh. I'll, whenever I hear about government shutdowns, all I can think of is the episode of The West Wing. Do you watch The West Wing at all? Uh, not for many years, but I'm oh, familiar. Okay. But there was one where the, the government got shut down, and they ended it with like the sound of a jail cell slamming sh shut. <laughs> and that's all I think of now when I hear about government shutdowns. <laughs> um, any uh, other, uh, anything you've been watching or playing or anything? Uh, one of my favorite video games that I played recently is this Australian game called Rumu, 
where you hmm. essentially play as a Roomba in a <laughs> near future house, uh, discovering what happened to your erstwhile creators slash owners. Ah. And it's a surprisingly deep, charming, emotional story that I would rank up there with games like Gone Home. But it also plays up its uh, interactive and adventure game style elements. So there's more uh, overt problem solving and things like that inherent to the mechanics. But as uh, chief cheerleader for the robot uprising, it was a very, <laughs> very fun game for me to play and one of my favorites of 2017. Oh, that sounds good. I remember I heard of it just at the end of the year, and I usually try to like fit in as many smaller games at the end of December so that I can make a top 10 list that is very varied, but I didn't quite get to that one, so hopefully sometime soon. Riley, how about you? What have you been up to? Um, well, I haven't been playing too much uh, stuff, but... Um... Since you gifted me <laughs> a couple <laughs> games for my birthday, I uh, I started playing Cook Serve Delicious two, um, and um, it's basically like I guess the best way to put it is like a restaurant simulator, but um, all you're doing is like making the orders and serving people as they come in, mm-hmm. um, and Gosh, I they added so it's different from the first one in that they added holding stations so you can prep certain foods beforehand. Um, mm-hmm. And at first, I was really overwhelmed, <laughs> and I, I was like, I don't know if uh, I can do this because I have to worry about these holding station foods, and then I have to worry about the food orders that come in that are just you can start as they come in. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got used to it, I. Uh, it's much easier um, and I don't think I could go back to playing the first one now um, mm. because I really like those <laughs> holding stations. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I have played it a bit too because after I gifted it to you, I was like, hmm, I want to play <laughs> this now. Uh, I played the first Cook Serve Delicious on iPhone and oh, it's whoa. a lot easier with a keyboard than it is on phone, I found. How uh, do you play it on the phone? Like, It's just all tapping, so oh. there's no like shortcuts or anything. Okay. Um, yeah. Weird. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you could play it on mobile. I, and I don't know. I guess there's a, like a campaign mode where you do your own restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. But I have just been doing... There's, uh, I don't know how many different types of restaurants that are available in this tower that you work in. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been going through and trying to get as many gold medals as possible on all the restaurants. <laughs> um, and it's taking me a long time. <laughs> um, getting, like, having to get a perfect day with no bad orders and, like, no screw-ups at all is really, really difficult. Um, especially on the ones that have like, I don't know, five different main dishes and then each main dish is like, I don't know, 10 different ingredient combinations. Yeah. Um, 
like the amount of times that I've screwed up the very first dish that I get during rush hour is a lot. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just going to restart. Uh, I've restarted so many different days, but um, yeah, it's been really fun. And I, um, it's one of those games where you can leave it for a while and then come back to it. It's like getting on a bike and you remember where all the key binds are and you just <laughs> like fly through meal serving <laughs> sessions. So yeah, it's really good and I've been liking it a lot. Awesome. So as far as games for me, I picked up a couple rhythm games. Um, one I have actually played before, but it's Thumper, mm. which initially I think it was only on PS4, but it just came out on Xbox as well. And it's a, they call it a rhythm violence game, and it's all very like sort of industrial kind of music and you play this little silver beetle guy and he's basically just going along a track like it's kind of like a roller coaster and this controls are very simple like you basically only use one button and the d-pad but there's just a couple different things like you have to sort of bank around corners or you have to barrel through obstacles or jump over things and it's a lot of fun I really like the music and the visuals are very cool and it gets quite challenging despite there only being like a few different commands that you can have to do have to do uh but i've sort of been enjoying replaying that one and then since i seem to be on a rhythm game kick i also got crypt of the necro dancer which i had the exact opposite experience with i don't know i i kind of knew right from the beginning uh it it wants to like calibrate your controls i guess but first it was like okay press the button along with the beat and it's like okay I can do this and then it's like press the button along with this heart beating but it doesn't make any noise it's just press it along with the visual and that I was just like I I don't know I, I can't do this and the game is like a little roguelike dungeon crawler but you have to move on the beat and you have to learn the patterns of the monsters around you and I just it like it's breaking my brain I I <laughs> I need the combination of visual and audio in order to keep any sort of rhythm. And a lot of the time I can't look at the audio because it's, I mean, look at the visuals because it's sort of at the bottom of the screen and you have to look at the dungeon to see, you know, what's going on. So I just found I was the worst at Crypt of the Necrodancer. So I stopped playing it almost immediately. Um, Catherine, what else have you uh, been up to? So my partner is an enormous Doctor Who fan and as mm. a result of that I have also become an enormous Doctor Who fan. <laughs> I, I'd seen and liked and even done a bit of Doctor Who role playing before her and I got together a few years ago but she has brought me into the deepest mysteries of, of the TARDIS <laughs> so to speak. And so both with her and without her I've been uh, watching more of the uh, earlier New Who series. Mm -hmm. We really got into it together uh, with the 12th Doctor, who after my broad survey, I can conclusively say is my favorite. But I'm really, really looking forward now to Jodie Whittaker's turn as the Doctor, uh, now that I have this fuller understanding of the canon and the direction of the character. It, I'm really and so eager to see a woman give these grandiose heroic speeches and all the rest of it it's going to be delightful mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was really exciting to hear that it was finally going to be a woman. Who's the 12th Doctor? Is that the last one? I don't have my numbers uh, yes. particularly straight. Pe- <laughs> yeah. Peter Capaldi's Doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I never saw him. I only saw, uh, I guess, Eccleston, Tennant, and a little bit of Matt Smith. I sort of stopped watching mm-hmm. in his tenure. Yeah, I loved Capaldi's turn as the Doctor. I think that uh, initially Tennant was my absolute favourite, but Capaldi really won me over. There's there's so many layers to his performance and the writing, as well as Jenna Coleman's uh, companionship of him playing as Clara Oswald. Uh, it all it was a brilliant story. There was a lot of depth to both characters, and they added something significant to the series. I think. Nice. And how about with the older, what do you think of the older Doctor Who series? Are you a fan of those as well? My partner has been steadily showing me episodes from that, and I (laughs) concur with her that uh, Sylvester McCoy was uh, probably the best of the old Doctors, uh, with due deference being given to Tom Baker and all that, uh, who was also (laughs) quite fantastic in so many ways. Uh, For her birthday one year I got my partner the Tom Baker doctor scarf the long Uh colorful scarf so yes um but those are my thoughts on that all right uh Riley what else have you been watching or um Netflix has put up a bunch of Korean variety shows um So I have been watching (laughs) one in particular that um, usually I have to watch it like on a stream or through some back alley channels to find the subtitles. But um, this one in English, or at least on Netflix, the translation is Chef and My Fridge. Um, Mm -hmm. And the title that I know it under is Please Take Care of My Refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) Um... That's and, the best name. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why they changed it. It's really cute. Um, and it's a cooking show where they invite two guests on and they take their fridges from their homes to the studio um, and kind of present them to a group of eight chefs um, as they are. So whatever is in your fridge are the ingredients mm-hmm. that the chefs are going to have to cook with. Okay. Um, and so uh, you get like uh all these different kinds of guests who some of them have like completely full fridges with like every ingredient you can imagine and then there are like bachelor guests who have like instant ramen and like (laughs) nothing else um so uh it's really the and the hosts are really funny and the chefs themselves are actually really really funny and the more episodes you watch the more comfortable it is like it's clear that the cast is becoming more comfortable with each other um and every uh guest chooses two different types of meals that they would like so they describe uh what they want to eat or what they want to see the chefs make and then um there's two chefs per dish so four chefs will cook for one guest and four will cook for the next and then they have 15 minutes to make uh, something. And some of the chefs can make two or three dishes in 15 minutes. Um, 
and it's really really cool to see uh the kind of ingredients that they use and like how they modify like a traditional recipe um just to use the uh ingredients like that they have in the fridge so yeah it's been uh i finished <laughs> all the episodes that are currently on there so <laughs> i have to find a new show to watch but um yeah it's just so cool and it's so funny and um seeing them work with ingredients that maybe they you know wouldn't want to or wouldn't have to um is really cool and the guests are always surprised at what they can make from the stuff that's in their fridge so yeah it's a really good show and if you have time check it out on netflix because it's like it's easy to watch but there are subtitles so if you're busy and trying to do something else at the same time it's not gonna work <laughs> right <laughs> awesome yeah i'll check that out that's that's usually my downfall though i have a, a hard time only paying attention to one thing so yeah subtitles. <laughs> it's a really... bit tough yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so the thing that I have watched two episodes of so far that has made my year is that America's Next Top Model is back <laughs> and Tyra Banks is back as the host. <laughs> so last year it was hosted by Rita Ora and, you know, she was okay, but she's no Tyra. So Tyra's back and she's just as bonkers as ever. The first photo shoot, she had all the girls pose as pregnant women like they she had big prosthetic bellies on all of them <laughs> and it's it's so much fun i love that show it's like this great social <laughs> observation thing i really uh i love tyra banks <laughs> i don't think i've watched any america's next top model really yeah i don't think i've ever watched a full episode it's my favorite. I've watched <laughs> like every episode. <laughs> uh, uh, Catherine, how about you? Anything else you've been up to? Oh, a little of this, a little of that. Um, <laughs> I've been doing quite a lot of reading of just reams and reams of articles and research for uh, both forthcoming essays and a possible future book and... Uh, yeah, I've just been having a great time doing all of that. I um, I I really enjoy my work, and even though it keeps me very very busy, I just love learning new things. Uh, my one of my other girlfriends got me for Christmas this wonderful book called um, Shadows of the Mind, mm -hmm. and it is a fantastic text about. Uh, neurology and whether or not essentially tackling the question of whether artificial intelligence is simply a matter of um, producing computers fast enough to replicate the processes of the human brain or whether there is something else about the biological matter that cannot be replicated by technology alone and mm. Uh, the author Penrose basically comes down on the side of saying that essentially uh, artificial intelligence isn't going to happen uh, just through making faster and faster computers. It's a more complicated argument than that. There are formulas involved uh, that span many pages, but it's a 
fascinating, if dense, book, and it's. Uh, I was very grateful to get it for Christmas. So, also my birthday is Christmas Eve, so it's kind of the same oh. thing. <laughs> oh, that sounds fascinating. Uh, are all of his books are sort of that kind of line of thinking about artificial intelligence? And do you know? His most famous ones certainly are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Especially if you're cheering for the robot uprising. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, Riley, anything else for you? I have been neck deep in watching pro Overwatch play in the mm. last <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> um, oh, it's There's so much Overwatch. Yeah. Um, gosh, it's uh like so the pro the one problem that i have with having this much um pro overwatch on all the time is that i don't have a chance to play overwatch myself um because <laughs> i could be playing it um but i could also be watching it played at a much <laughs> higher level than what i'm capable of um but playing uh playing it and watching it at the same time is really hard uh because the noises that are coming from the uh, live stream, like you hear somebody use their ultimate or something, and you're like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I gotta hide. But nothing is happening in your game, so no. you just look like <laughs> a complete idiot. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so far, um, it's been really cool. Uh, I don't know if, like if they're going to be able to keep up the sheer amount of matches and stuff that all of the teams are going to be playing. And there's five weeks worth of matches. And in those, and those five weeks are called stages. So we're in stage one. There's four stages total. Um, and then there are playoffs and then the finals and then an all-star weekend where I assume they're going to do silly things like mystery heroes, which would be really funny. Um, you know, like stuff that the casuals do <laughs> like me. Um, and, uh, an interesting thing that happened this week was it kind of had our very first, uh, controversy with a player. Um, and he made some pretty gross remarks about another um, player, and he actually got suspended and fined for it, which I think is a great step for the Overwatch League, because a lot of people were watching to see what uh, what would happen with the first kind of incident like that, and I think that they've handled it really well. Um, so, yeah, I think so far it's off to a pretty good start. Um, I'm excited yeah, XQC to see making Canada look bad. Yeah, Sorry. God, he's doing such a <laughs> shit job. Like honestly. Yeah. Uh, um. So yeah, I'm really excited to see. Um. You know what happens in the later stages and whether or not some of the teams can come closer to the teams that have full Korean rosters because right now hmm. the teams with full Korean rosters are. 3-0 and or 4-0, and and they're just crushing all the other teams. Um, yeah. So I saw that 
Seoul Dynasty. Like the first <laughs> when they played Dallas Fuel that first night, that was really really good. Yeah. Um. And and that was the actually the only time I've seen them so far. But I looked at the standings and they just swept <laughs> everyone since yeah. then. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, it'll be really interesting when Seoul plays uh, New York or London. Um, so I'm really looking forward to those matches, and I think that happens next week. Um, so next week, I think what do we get? Seoul plays New York on Friday, so that'll be a really really good match. Um, but so far. The matches are kind of predictable, especially if those three teams are playing. Um, but uh, I think, you know, this league is still, like, really in its infancy, so there's, like, lots of room to, to grow and change things. And um, so far it's turning out really well, and I hope that they succeed even more and eventually we get more teams and more diversity of players and... Yeah, it's, it's going good so far. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so last week I finally went out and saw The Last Jedi. Yay! I even saw it in a fancy theater where they like bring you wine and stuff. Even better. Um, <laughs> yeah. The best way to see a film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't go out to the movie theater very often, so I figure when I do I should treat myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I, um, loved seeing, uh, Ray's journey and I really like everything that happened with Luke and how he was just like tired of everyone's shit. I enjoyed (laughs) that. Um, I cried a lot as, as normal. I just like, as soon as the, the, intro role comes out i'm just in tears uh yeah (laughs) um so i i really enjoyed it i i heard i heard a lot of the criticisms about it and i don't agree with all that many of them Mm -hmm. um especially the one about the humor i thought it was a little bit jarring that it basically opened with a your mother joke but (laughs) after that i was like no i think this humor works and empire strikes back was basically a two-hour series of one-liners so i think it i think it fits mm-hmm. um mm. you saw it too uh recently Catherine, didn't you yes i did and i absolutely loved it i i thought it was a a triumph for the series another polygon article i wrote recently was about how it echoed uh, a previously lonely and radical theme that was taken up by a solitary video game, Knights of the Old Republic 2, in its attempt to deconstruct the sort of Manichaean ethos that had so long infused Star Wars, that, you know, the Jedi are perfectly good and the Sith are perfectly evil and never the twain shall meet. And for the last Jedi, the emphasis was more on values divorced from a strict code and the force as a living entity. There was a return to the idea of the force as this thing that binds the universe together, that's bigger than any mortal's attempt to confine it or corral it into a single theology or system. And it was beautifully done, uh, along with, of course, 
fantastic characterization that led to not just deconstructing the force but some of the tropes of star wars's own bullshit frankly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in a way that somehow still remained true to the fundamental optimism and heroism of the series that was an incredible tightrope walk and everyone involved pulled it off to perfection I, yeah, I actually did read that Polygon article as well. I really liked uh, that sort of tying into KOTOR too. And I, I actually wish they had gone a little bit further in the movie with it. Like, I hope that they continue it in the third one. Because as it stands, it's sort of like, uh, is anyone sort of going to continue on this this train of thought? Or if they both just, you know, no, I'm on this side, you're on that side. Uh so I'm hoping that that gets explored even more in the third movie. But yeah, I I loved it. I thought it was just exciting and I loved all the characters. And they had some really great set pieces. The battle on the salt planet was so fantastic. I thought that was such a great setting for a battle. Just visually, just mm. stunning. Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally agree. It was, um, I suppose... Are we doing spoilers here? Is... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll a... just give a warning yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I, so I always joke it's part of my job being a critic that this is what I do. I spoil everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, the, probably my favorite set piece, and I know I'm not alone in this, was after Holdo's heroic sacrifice. Just mm. everything about that shot was one of the mm. most beautiful things that I've seen in movies all year. It's not just me as saying that as a Star Wars fan, it was beautifully put together. The sound or the lack of it, the framing of the shot, the sudden uh, bisection of the massive Star Destroyer, it was just so fantastically put together and that will stay with me forever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that was a fantastic one as well. I... Yeah, there were so many good visuals and great uses of sort of silence in the movie. Um, yeah, I was, I don't know, I after, i walked into that movie just feeling completely pumped. Like, <laughs> bring on the next one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Catherine, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we go to our main topic? Oh, no, I think I'm good. All right. Riley? Uh, no, I've only been doing those three things. <laughs> those three things. Um, I'll just say really quick, I also watched What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> yes, finally. Yeah, which, yeah, you talked about a while ago, and it was so good. It's sort of like a, a mockumentary about these vampires living in New Zealand, and it's got Taika Waititi in it, and he is just adorable in that movie. Oh my god, I loved him so much. <laughs> uh, it was it was great. If if you like any of those sort of mockumentaries, like the Christopher Guest ones or anything, and if you like vampires, this was fantastic. It was hilarious. So uh, definitely recommend what we do in the shadows if you haven't seen it. <laughs> All right, so that brings us on to our main topic for the episode, which is Black Mirror. And Black Mirror is a, was originally a British science fiction television series by Charlie Booker, 
and each season is fairly short, generally three to six episodes, and they all basically stand alone, although I think they are all in the same universe. Uh, And a lot of it is mostly dealing with society in regards to technology and how that affects our lives. So, um, any sort of starting thoughts on Black Mirror? Sort of like if you've been a fan of it, or Catherine, I know that you say you only watch episodes here and there. Well, I remember all the fanfare around Black Mirror when it first started uh, back mm-hmm. as a UK show and the first episode, the national anthem, really set the tone for the entire series and people are still talking about it. It was very much a love it or hate it moment. If you were turned off by that episode, and a lot of people were, mm-hmm. um, the basic plot of it is this. Uh, it's set in the UK. The a royal princess is kidnapped and the kidnapper demands as ransom uh, publicly broadcast video of the prime minister copulating with a pig. And that is the driving drama of the entire episode of, you know, this uh, government scrambling to avoid having to do that. And spoiler, their inevitable failure to do so. Um, and it set the tone. I think that my favorite response to it was, uh, and I really, I tried finding the editorial, I think it was in The Guardian uh, that said this, but that the show is so cynical, it's naive. And mm. that is something that I broadly still believe in. Uh, I think that when it, even when it first started and this felt like a new and fresh take on technology, there was a darkness to it that sort of overwhelmed everything and you either had to take it or leave it. If you couldn't stand it, the show simply wasn't for you. Uh, But even if you could, it was something that you had to take very much with a grain of salt. Um, And I think that the show has had its moment. I think that season four will be uh, the last season that it can critically get away with. We're at a political moment where I think the sort of dystopian vision is no longer useful for a lot of people. We're living in the darkest timeline. People want hope. I think that was part of the reason that you know the new Star Wars movies have been resonating so much because they're sort of returned to that kind of unalloyed, unironic, straightforward heroism. And that's something that people need to believe in right now with all of the horrors that our world is being drowned by at the moment. Uh, Black Mirror does exactly the opposite. It sort of dwells in the utter darkness and depravity that we as human beings are capable of. And the technological spin on it, it makes it resonant in its own way, but it can also lead to it becoming sort of self-referential and cliched. It's why you started to see the Twitter hot takes and irony brigade really turn on the series. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my favorites, favorite tweets is um, this picture of a knife taped to a Roomba captioned, (laughs) captioned Black Mirror 2017. And it Mm -hmm. is just, yeah, like the show is sort of becoming kind of a parody of itself in a way. And so I think this is the last season where it will remain effective. Um, 
And the final thing I have to say, which I think can frame the rest of our discussion, is that as a result of all of this, the very best episodes of Black Mirror, and the ones I think that we're going to discuss a lot today, are the ones that are optimistic, the ones that actually deviate from the norm of the series, which is otherwise very dark and depraved and very cynical. Uh, episodes like USS Callister, uh, San Junipero, and I will argue that Black Museum is actually of a piece with those other two episodes. I would say so too, mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> Riley, any um, starting thoughts? Yeah, I... So, the funny thing, or at least, well, maybe not funny, but uh, the very first episode that I saw of Black Mirror wasn't actually the pig one. Um, because, and I think if it was, I wouldn't have watched anymore um because even just watching that episode uh after having watched um the the social one the social media one where everyone is giving each other up votes or down votes depending on how they behave Mm -hmm. that was the first one that i saw um and i think going back and watching the one with the pig I was I was like wow I I really didn't expect that kind of tone coming out of the show after having watched that other one um so I'm I'm glad that I (laughs) didn't watch that one first because I wouldn't have had much to say in this conversation (laughs) um yeah I really I really didn't like that first one at all like I I could have turned it off halfway and been happy about it, um, but I st- stuck it out and I watched it anyway. Um, but yeah, I do. I agree with you, Catherine. Where um, I think that the best episodes are the ones that are more optimistic, that show that maybe you know the little guy can win over. Um, maybe like an oppressor like in the USS Kelster or um even the Black Museum episode where um the girl I forget her name but she Nish Nish yes uh she kind of looks like she goes there as just a regular tourist but then we see you know kind of what she's actually doing there um and it feels good because we're like yes <laughs> get him <laughs> um and yeah, I think I think that those are the kind of episodes and messages that we need now because even, you know, in Canada we're watching what's going on in the states right now and it's it's hard because like what what can we do from up here? So I think we that having the more optimistic ones about, you know, winning and uh, heroic acts are are definitely what we need right now. So are there women's marches in Canada today? That's I was true. Noticing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's yeah. one. I know there's definitely one in Calgary, and there's for sure one in Toronto right now. Yeah, so so delightful to see all those people gathered in Nathan Phillips Square. Toronto is a city that means the world to me, so I am so pleased, so chuffed to see that. <laughs> This happened the last time that the women's marches were happening. We were doing a podcast. podcasting. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so just my initial thoughts. I actually did watch the 
the pig episode first mm. and I did find I I didn't enjoy it at all. I had a pretty bad reaction to that, but I kept watching and it's good cuz I really enjoyed the second episode 15 million merits. So that's sort of uh. what hooked me into it cuz I know that the show can be very cynical and sort of showing people at their worst and like you know there's part of my you know lizard brain where you know watching people be horrible and hurting each other can be entertaining but like there's no part of my brain that wanted to watch a man have sex with a pig (laughs) so uh I, I also agree that some of the best episodes are those where there's something hopeful in them because at this point, some of the episodes already, even though the show isn't very old, seem very dated. Like there was one mm. in series two called The Waldo Moment where it's like a comedian controlling a computer animated bear and he's just this awful, vulgar uh, yeah. creature <laughs> who somehow gets very popular and people will just follow him no matter what he says and he ends up running as a politician uh and now it's just like uh you know i've seen worse like (laughs) (laughs) uh so i i do still enjoy this show i there are some that i find a little too dark like i feel like they're not really saying anything particularly interesting about people or technology um one of those was the episode Crocodile in this most recent series, mm. um, which was the one where the woman, her and a friend had like hit someone and killed them with their car many years ago. And then it goes back to how she continues covering up this crime. And I just felt that one was just so depressing and had nothing really to say other than humans are awful like there was there was there was no real message there there was no real interesting technology so occasionally the show sort of stoops into that and I don't enjoy it but then there are the episodes like USS Callister or San Junipero where it's um manages to sort of break out of that really sort of depressing and cynical mindset Mm. Yes, I, I think for me, the episode that most uh, was like what you were describing there, where it got just excessively dark, was uh, Shut Up and Dance, where it really was mm. just uh, layers mm. upon layers of, I want to say trauma porn, although that's not quite right. That describes many other elements of Black Mirror, but Shut Up and Dance was just sort of wallowing in its darkness and in making viewers even a bit complicit in it because of you know the big revelation of what happens with the point of view character who by dint of being mm-hmm. the POV character you're sympathizing with them so that you become complicit haha twist but yeah <laughs> um you know the it's not that that's bad art necessarily and it was certainly quite well done but it in its own way but it's still nevertheless the sort of thing that becomes rather tiresome in repetition. Black Mirror was originally meant to be sort of a a closed anthology that would have wrapped up in one or two seasons, which initially, if you recall, were fairly short seasons. Mm -hmm. They were uh, three episodes each. And now we've moved into a somewhat more traditional series structure. 
And I don't think this is a theme that you can just keep repeating ad nauseum forever and ever. Um, I think that it will exhaust itself at some point. And I do feel like that's more or less happened with Series 4. We've reached now the outer limits of it. And I think it's rather fitting that Black Museum was um, where this series ended. Uh, not only thematically, but even in terms of its Easter eggs, where they're throughout the eponymous museum were all of these little references to earlier episodes and I feel like if this episode where there was a a sense of justice of a woman of color triumphing over not only a man who embodied technology being used for inhumane purposes but uh, over its connection to the prison industrial complex and uh, mm. law enforcement abuse and so forth. Uh, if that's the note it's going to go out on, I'm quite happy for it. And I, I hope that this is the end of the series, honestly. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like they, they did go, I'd say three, well, I guess, yeah, I guess three of the episodes from this series, I would say, are somewhat more positive like if they could spin it more that way as opposed to the really cynical dark ones i would watch a fifth series for sure um but yeah i i know what you're saying about you know maybe it's maybe it's run its course um now some of the themes that are in the show um, I mean, it, people say it's about technology, and I always sort of bristle somewhat uh, as you talked about sort of like the irony brigade on Twitter with the like, what if technology, but too much? Um, and <laughs> there, <laughs> uh, there was this a couple series of tweets from uh, Yusuf Cole, who's been on the show before on our Arrival episode, and he says... Here's the thing about Black Mirror. Its best episodes aren't an indictment of technology. They're an indictment of shitty human behavior aided by technology. Uh, I get ragging on its writing or direction or whatever, but call it for what it is. It's not just a show saying technology is bad. And it works because that's exactly how technology works. Tech can be used for good to make our lives better, but in the hands of greed, capital, racism, it is used to subordinate. Uh, so I really, I really liked that take on it because I feel like it's not just technology bad. It's technology is something that enables us to do what we're doing more or more intensely. Uh, so I think it's more, mostly about people as opposed to technology. I mean, even that very first episode with the pig, technology didn't play a huge role in it like there was no you know future tech like oh what if this happens it was sort of like this is kind of how things are like already and here's some bad things happening yeah there's usually an element of technology that it, that plays a villainous role in the hands of antagonistic people right and that's what i like about it uh, i think certainly that use of coal's uh view is spot on in this matter that it's about the evil that people can do with now commonly accessible uh, information age technologies and the show's speculative fiction is themed around that so you know the national anthem for example 
Uh, there was a lot about that episode that made me cringe, even as I also begrudgingly liked a lot of it. But one thing that I really enjoyed was a scene where the Prime Minister's wife is compulsively checking Twitter and seeing all of the incredibly cruel ways that people are making fun of her husband for you know, what's happening to him, essentially, and what he's about to be put through. And I was like, this is... It's incredible because it shows how even uh, relatively powerful and relatively privileged people can be affected by the overwhelming tide of online discourse in ways that are emotionally resonant, right? That it's not just words on a screen, but that this stuff is impactful. And I, I thought that that was very useful at that time because it's a message that people still have a lot of trouble grappling with that what's said on the internet is functionally real it doesn't just disappear into the ether and you know mm -hmm. Charlie Brooker he has a very cynical mean streak about him but he is I think a fundamentally decent man I've read a lot of his writing and seen many of his other other shows on British television and he does have a fundamental decency about him and that comes through not only in several Black Mirror episodes but in its best episodes which are about redeeming the humanity that we fritter away through our misuse of our own creations. Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly the point. It's it's all about people misusing technology or just using it for bad instead of good. Um, all right, so want to get to some of the standout episodes. So I think one of the sort of maybe the first real positive episode of Black Mirror with San Junipero and that didn't come until the third series um, was that something everyone just watched as part of the series or did you watch it specifically because of the sort of talk around it oh because of the talk around it <laughs> um, once it was described to me I, I just had to see it and also on a personal level I love 80s pop music so <laughs> the aesthetics of the episode also appealed to me on their own level but like I, I just kept seeing everywhere from a lot of people I trust and whose opinions I value just saying see San Junipero now and <laughs> like okay well I suppose I should see what the big deal is and I was not disappointed I was really not disappointed so San Junipero takes place, uh, well, at least at the beginning, it looks like it's sort of in the 80s. It's sort of in a land of nightclubs and arcades, and it seems like very positive. And two women become friends. These are Kelly and Yorkie. And as the episode goes on, you realize that they're actually, uh, these bodies that they're in aren't real uh, in San Junipero. This is a sort of server where people can basically upload themselves and they can live the rest of their lives there so that they basically can live forever. Uh, yeah, I I really loved this episode. It was just such a departure from the rest of the series so far. Uh, Riley, do you have any thoughts on this one? Um... I had seen people talking about it um, 
before I got to it. I didn't skip anything to get to it, but I was um, really looking forward to it. Um, I think uh, the first person that I saw talking about it was Apple Cider, um, Mm -hmm. and she... Uh, I trust her opinions for a lot of things. So um, when I heard her talking about this, uh, I was really looking forward to it. Um, it, I thought it was really beautiful. Like I thought it was this really lovely, um, like hopeful thing where you know you could meet somebody from really far away and. Um, eventually get to spend the rest of your life with them. Um, which, uh, I mean, <laughs> to draw like a very small uh, comparison, like I met my boyfriend online through World of Warcraft and now we're together. We've been together for almost nine years. So um, that was really, I don't know, I was kind of like, oh, it's just like, us in a way (laughs) um but um yeah I really loved it and I thought um the technology that was presented was really cool um how you could like upload your consciousness to this server I mean um yeah I thought it was really great and I I liked that episode a lot I think it's interesting that Uh, that idea of sort of this second life where you're uploading yourself to somewhere else, uh, that takes place, that's mentioned in sort of all three of the episodes we're going to be talking about now. And I feel like that's something that's really resonant because I'm just seeing it all over the place. I mean, that was a big part of the game Soma. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there's there, I know there's another game that I just can't think of off the top of my head right now, but I feel like that's, I don't know, culturally, people are really, are really into that concept. I feel like I'm seeing it everywhere right now. <laughs> it's a hard thing to pass up, I guess. Like, yeah, you know, humans are searching for a way to not die. So this seems, mm-hmm. you know, like a way that is like not impossible but at the same time not like super possible especially right now but it just seems like you know something that you could easily imagine at least so yes why not upload yourself to the cloud yeah yeah exactly. mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> it's funny because the uh, game that i contributed material to eclipse phase if you're not familiar with it is a sci-fi game that is entirely themed around that like the core conceit Mm. is a transhumanist Uh one where you can upload your consciousness into uh, a different body uh, at will essentially as long as you have the resources and you know the latter drives a lot of the conflict of the game and Mm. the ideological distinctions of various factions and so on are defined by how they apportion resources around uh, body switching. Oh. And it's a fascinating universe, uh, and it raises a lot of interesting ethical, psychological, and sociological questions. And Black Mirror toys with the idea uh, quite beautifully, I think, for a variety of ends. And uh, San Junipero and Black Museum make for an interesting study in contrast in that regard, because Uh, Black Museum being sort of an anthology within an anthology is sort of themed around this idea of 
torturous ways in which uh, consciousness switching facilitated mm. by technology uh, can be used in ways that are absolutely horrifying, that are just nightmare fuel. All three uh, mini sort of vignettes within Black Museum are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are, are themed around that idea. And in San Junipero, it's used to create a sort of afterlife. You know, it, it, you know heaven really does become a place on Earth. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and in each, you explore something that raises uh, uh, as many fascinating questions as not. And I think it, that's when the speculative fiction aspect of Black Mirror really comes into its own, is in playing with the thematic and philosophical questions around these ideas. Because there's science fiction that dwells in what is realistically, scientifically possible, and there's science fiction that dwells in speculation of, well, it would be interesting to look at what would happen to society if this thing were magically possible, right? Mm -hmm. USS Callister does that as well. The whole uh, creating a fully sapient hologram out of a person from a strand of DNA, it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous on its face. It is an absolutely fatuous piece of technology that could likely never exist, but that's not the point. It's a MacGuffin to get to the story, to get to what really matters, which are the philosophical questions that emerge from, well, what if this were possible? I love how each episode sort of deals with that in a different way. Um, and even in in Black Museum, I like how uh, even the ones where it started off as like a positive thing, I believe it was the second story where the, the man's wife is basically in a coma so he has the option to install her consciousness basically in his own brain and just even sort of the commentary on just like moving on and losing people and at first it seems like a great idea like oh I don't want to lose my wife of course I want her in me and to basically share a mind with her but then as as time goes on you realize how how problematic that can be and how it sort of prevents you from doing any kind of moving on and it ends up in a place where neither people are happy but one person is completely without agency in the in the environment even though that was what they initially wanted as well yes and in black museum what i found fascinating about it was that on the theme of technology being used in evil ways, it posited a world where the current racist, anti-black criminal justice system that we have in America has reached a new nadir where the already extant commodification of black suffering uh, is now turned into what amounts to a carnival exhibition, right? Where Mm. the murder and mortification of a black man, an actual conscious human being becomes entertainment for the masses, right? And that that is facilitated mm-hmm. by this, uh, by Rollo Haynes's development of this uh, neurological technology. And it was horrifying but necessary speculative fiction. It's one of those moments where the dystopian proves its relevance even in times like this where we have to be able to visualize that this is where things are going if we Mm. don't put the brakes on 
uh, this is the natural extension of uh, already extant ideologies and systems. And it was uh, the entire conceit of the episode was that Nish had to take justice into her own hands because the social and legal system was essentially mm -hmm. protecting Rollo Haynes in ways that allowed him to do this, to do what he was doing, uh, to do, uh, to perpetuate this horror on Nisha's father in perpetuity, but also to keep that, for instance, uh, stuffed monkey that still had that woman's consciousness in it, right? Mm -hmm. And right. so what was required was extrajudicial action. And in this way, Black Mirror achieves an optimistic ending in that there is justice. There is a form of restoration that happens because a black woman took power into her own hands and used it to mete out mm -hmm. justice, right? And that's why I class Black Museum with USS Callister and San Junipero. But it also ties into another theme of Black Mirror where, and this is what connects it to USS Callister, is that even when justice is present, it is never redemptive. It is always very, very brutal and retributive. And that's something that can also be talked about. Some people didn't like that about USS Callister, right? That, you know, Robert Daly mm. ultimately dies functionally. You know, mm. you die in the computer, you die in real life. That's really <laughs> what happened there. Um, but that's the nature of justice in Black Mirror. And certainly that, that in and of itself is an expression of the dark themes of the series and arguably it's cynicism, right? That this may be the only way to achieve justice. I think that's one of the big themes of the show about justice and punishment because there's been other episodes that sort of explore those themes. Um, there was one, which I can't remember the name of right now, but it was a woman and she was in this what eventually ended up being revealed as a simulation where she was sort of fighting for her life oh. and it seemed like some kind of apocalyptic situation and then at the end you find out that she had committed some crime and this was her punishment to keep having to go through this over and over for the entertainment of an audience um so that one was a fairly <laughs> dark oh, one as yeah. well and then also the Shut Up and Dance episode as well, where it's about justice and punishment. Um, although obviously in that one, even, I don't know, that one just felt bad in, in, in all directions. You think, oh, okay, well, he's, why is he being treated this way? And then you find out what he's doing, but it doesn't feel particularly cathartic, the end of it, like his punishment and watching it doesn't feel that cathartic it just feels as bad as the rest of it indeed all right so let's go on to uss callister so Catherine, you wrote a great article about this black mirrors uss callister filters toxic fandom through star trek uh can you give just a quick sort of summary of your thesis here oh yes i argued that it was a great examination of what a toxic fan is, does, and desires. And I read it through the lens of my own experience, both as a video game nerd and a Star Trek fan, and my experience with both the beauty of fandom and how it can motivate some people to become like Robert Daly, uh, abusive and horrible. 
And I basically argued that that people have to choose the best of fandom, that by avoiding uh, possessiveness, by avoiding the desire to arrogate it all to yourself, to make everything about your own fantasy, uh, that you can explore a much larger and more beautiful world. I definitely see all those themes in the episode. Um, Riley, did you have any starting thoughts on the episode, USS Callister? Um, I, I, the, the, the first thing that I kind of, uh, um, latched onto was, um, that you should never meet your heroes, uh, because, um, Nanette, when she meets Daly, she immediately says, like, I love your code. Um, you're the reason that I started working here. Um, and she, you know, goes on to say, uh, you know, how she admires uh, his work. Um, and then he kind of, like, I don't know, like, takes that as a way, in the way that maybe she's, uh, like, interested um in him or he thinks that she is uh and then um she's Nanette is subsequently warned by another woman that works there um that he's kind of creepy and to kind of stay away so for me it really mirrored um like a you know kind of a weird uh like not toxic but like a workplace where you know you might not be super comfortable even though Nanette said she came from somewhere like that already um it's like uh like we see now with the whisper networks of women that are warning other people about creepy men um that was the main thing that really stood out to me instead of the nerdy um like fan focused stuff which I definitely see now looking at it through another lens but the the one that stuck with me was how, you know, dudes are creepy and, <laughs> and gross. Uh. Yeah, I like, it was very much a warning that he would take friendliness and admiration as a romantic overture and mm-hmm. then get uh, needy and potentially clingy as a result. And crucially, his reaction to that when he see, when he overhears that and notices that happening is mm-hmm. to then mm-hmm. you know rifle through her trash get her dna from a coffee cup and put her into the game and into yeah. a place where a fully sentient sapient digital clone of hers recreated along with the rest of the office staff where he can control and abuse them right mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. that uh, that for me is critical that for him the the fact that they were perfect perfectly human copies was crucial for him it wasn't just that they looked like his co-workers they were his co-workers and he got to do all of these horrible things to them right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was part of the fantasy for him that was what made it so thrilling that they were real yeah, that was the disturbing part about it. Because, I mean, he was a developer. He could easily just make, you know, basically skins and have people 
who aren't sentient to do his bidding and make him feel like the starship captain he saw himself as. Uh, but yeah, the fact that he had to upload the real them as a sort of punishment uh, for whatever slight he felt that they had done against him. I thought this episode was so well done. Um, I guess, it again, it was a bit of a departure since up to this point, San Junipero was the only happier episode that we have seen, even though this definitely had its, its twists and turns and had its disturbing elements. But when it first opened up and it was basically original star trek i was like what is going on <laughs> and i thought that jesse plemons did a fantastic captain kirk he uh did a really good impression of that so immediately i liked him uh just because of friday night lights even though i know he was terrible in breaking bad and i've seen him in that too <laughs> but i immediately was like oh he's nice and like oh his co-workers are mean to them oh this poor guy i feel so bad <laughs> and then it's just like nope Let's let's flip this around a little bit. It was like, oh, okay, so he's the creep here. Uh, it was, I don't know. I just felt like it was sort of like this rollicking space adventure, uh, which was definitely a fantastic departure from the rest of the episodes in the series. Yeah, I I loved the Star Trek references, and as I noted in my article, they did betray a love of Trek itself. Right, which some of the more ridiculous critics of the episode failed to see. Like, oh, this is just an attack on Star Trek and making no. fun of its fans no. and whatnot. And like, you know, no, not really. Like, it's coming from a place of recognition and love. Like, one of the things I noted, for instance, was how the the lighting used whenever Daly was on the bridge was often very similar to the dark lighting given to the Romulans in the original series, right? Like, it was those very little things that were simultaneously deep-cut nerd callbacks, but also advancing the themes of the episode. And mm -hmm. I really liked a lot of the stuff like that. But also it was, as I said, a, in many ways, a redemption of nerdiness and fan culture because like, you have to remember all the people on that bridge work at a video game studio they're mm -hmm. all nerds on what to mm -hmm. one degree or another right Nanette Cole is an amazing coder for instance she didn't she wasn't a space fleet fan but she was absolutely a nerd right the issue is not that Robert Daly is the stand-in for all nerds it's that he's a stand-in for a particularly toxic, possessive element of nerd culture. And the argument that I advance is that the episode shows how such people get so deeply wrapped up in this increasingly putrefying love for an aspect of nerd culture that they become like the villains these shows warn us against. The, the beauty of the transformation from his you know, sort of Captain Kirk cosplay to him at the end, a totally over-the-top, cackling, maniacal villain making these grandiose, horrifying speeches. You know, mm. you know you, your death is going to be biblical, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, like he, he became not just, you know, Carl Noonien Singh, but even worse than that, right? And... 
that's one of the core points that the episode is trying to make, is that when you become that kind of nerd, however much you may think you are um, possessed of the spirit of the heroes, you are actually like the villains of whatever your, your nerd culture may be. And I list several examples of that in the article. I don't even see how people can read it as, as being critical of Star Trek itself when it obviously seems to love it so much. I mean, I guess it's just that people tend to internalize things <laughs> and feel like they're being attacked for something. But yeah, I don't know. From the aesthetics that were so reminiscent of the original Star Trek to even the whole storyline was a lot like the Barkley episodes of The Next Generation where he'd go into mm-hmm. the uh, holodeck and make all the, make like Deanna Troy fawning over him <laughs> and mm-hmm. punching Riker. And like, <laughs> uh, it obviously was it seemed like the people making it were a fan of Star Trek and wanting to pay homage to that. But it was just about sort of taking its messages, I guess how people can take its message and twist it into their own way. Like Daly espoused all these beliefs that were supposedly from the show, but he didn't actually feel them he didn't feel the need to actually be respected he just wanted to force it on other people um Mm -hmm. otherwise they would be punished no he he knew the letter of space fleet's philosophy but not its spirit right and in that it mirrors so much of toxic fan culture where people will you know say they love the doctor from doctor who but refuse to truly grok the struggles he has in becoming and maintaining his status as a good person, right? Mm. And what it means to, as was repeated a lot in the latest series, not be cruel or cowardly, to always be kind, right? They want Mm -hmm. the power, they want the status, they want the power fantasy. And that's fine when you're five years old, But when you're an adult, you are not only free to, but should be expected to, grapple with the deeper moral lessons here. And because this is genre fiction, like we're not talking about war and peace here, it's very surface level what's happening. The moral lesson (laughs) is pretty simple, pretty easy to understand, right? (laughs) You know, you want to be like the Starfleet officers, you don't want to be like you know, Khan or whatever. And yet, somehow, people still fail to grok that. And that happens in part because you want to pursue the sense of power that comes with being like those heroic figures, but you don't want to understand that heroism requires a moral foundation as well, that you owe something to other people as well as to yourself. And Daly was such a perfect fictionalized representation of that yeah i think i don't know this episode was just fantastic all the way around i think um riley did you have anything else to add to swing it around in a bit of a different direction um what did you think of like the ending like how they were uh, now in this game forever and then they have this <laughs> like universe to go explore forever 
It was like, what I loved about that was that it was the triumph of classic Star Trek optimism, right? Mm. That goodness gets its reward, but also then you can explore the universe. It's out there waiting for you. And there is, yes, the little cynical Black Mirror reminder that this is the universe in an MMO and you're going to be dealing with sweary, asshole trolls. But (laughs) I love Nanette Cole's response to that. It's not like, you know, the camera closes in on her as she looks into space in horror. It's, let's see what's out there. And what Mm -hmm. could be more Trek than that? And I I thought that it was actually a very beautiful ending. Uh, It was a way of showing that that there was, even amidst the darkness and all the horrible ways that these technologies can be used, and, and Charlie Brooker is a gamer. He loves video games. He, uh, way, way back when, in like the, the late 80s and early 90s, used to do my job, right, reviewing video games <laughs> and, and whatnot. Uh, and it shows in this episode because like, even as he points out what's ugly in gaming, he shows that it's still this vast and beautiful universe waiting to be explored and that it's a place where the best of us can thrive as well as the worst. Well put. I I liked the ending. I thought it was very optimistic, although I did really like that the end, the sort of aggressive troll guy (laughs) was Aaron Paul. So that kind of made my day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I thought it was good. It was, you know, a sense of adventure and exploring sort of like it's sort of like the sense of adventure that was promised in the beginning of the episode and then it was just continued at the end although in a more positive way without a tyrannical commander Mm -hmm. at the helm Mm -hmm. um i mean there are still some like existentially like do we do we really want to be trapped in the game for (laughs) ever forever (laughs) i'm sure the servers will shut off at some point but (laughs) There was also, uh, there were a lot of people speculating about, like, what would happen to the real-life Nanette Cole, um, or the Mm -hmm. one who's out in the physical world, Uh, what Mm -hmm. would happen when, because it's sort of vague what exactly happens to Robert Daly. Like, we know he's trapped in the game, but does he Mm -hmm. actually die? Is he in a coma? We don't know what's going to happen when his body or comatose form is found uh, and what's going to result from that Uh, and I feel like that may be exceeding the bounds of what was meant to be a self-contained story but if Mm -hmm. we are speculating Mm -hmm. on sort of what happens after uh, that was something that some people brought up and I thought "Eh, it's not a a terrible point to wonder uh, what happens there but I don't think that it actually makes the ending darker than it appears to be at first blush so yeah I yeah I think it's sort of out of the scope I I'm not terribly concerned about the uh external people which I guess are the real people (laughs) but (laughs) we get to know them so much less in the in the real world than we do in the game so uh, I know uh, something that I've heard brought up is the use of Nanette basically um, blackmailing herself with revenge porn. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was something that made me a bit uncomfortable. 
um, there are there are two things that felt like they didn't quite work with the overall themes of USS Callister, and that was definitely one of them, was that I, I wish that they had found a more creative way to handle that. Like when uh, virtual Nanette said, oh yeah, I've got some pictures that she'd do anything to not have out there. I'm like, okay, so this is clever writing. They're clearly setting up something that you don't expect because that your mm -hmm. mind goes to sexy pictures, right? Well, clearly it's actually going to be something else because that would be way too cliche. <laughs> and lo and behold, it was a cliche. <laughs> like, oh, well, well, that sucks. And also a sexist trope. So, you know, it was not, it wasn't terribly great for me. And I really, really wish that they had found a more creative way to handle that, um, to have, you know, mm -hmm. the leverage over her. I, I had almost thought it was going to be something like, oh, actually she's, uh, I don't know, a secret space fleet fan and there's a picture of her dressed as, you know, a Spock lookalike mm -hmm. convention <laughs> or something. Something like that that would have allowed for, you know, other themes to be introduced perhaps of, you know, her confronting her own nerddom in a way that was redemptive as well. But... Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I thought was a bit odd was that Daly was the chief technology officer at this firm. He was very high up and, and yes, browbeaten by his CEO, but he was kind of treated like the put-upon rank-and-file office space nerd worker and that really mm -hmm. didn't work where, you know, he was sort of like kind of picked on and unpopular and like, oh, you know, no one offers to get him coffee. He trips over the jock programmer's bag and gets kind of laughed at and, and so on and so forth. And it's just like, you know, in a real Silicon Valley firm, <laughs> which is this is clearly modeled on, you know, the carpet he walked on would be worshipped by many of these mm. people which would be its own horrible toxic dynamic and I know that they tried to get at that a bit with Nanette Cole mm. but it was unrealistic. I would have preferred that they leaned into the fact that as the CTO of what was clearly a very successful probably multi-million or billion dollar tech firm that a uh, gaming studio that, you know, he already had all of this power, right? He has a really nice apartment, too. He's clearly doing quite well for himself. He already has all this power in the real physical world and yet still feels this overwhelming need to be a horrifying abuser in virtual confines. And instead, they sort of, in an, a way that I feel like is inadvertent because the themes of the show are so clear, they sort of exonerate him in a weird way by showing him as being sort of, you know, put upon and kind of disliked in, in his real life. And it just doesn't jive with the power that he has, right? Like, of course, people with a lot of power can be disliked and lonely, but not mm -hmm. in that specific way. As I said, he, he has the, the mien of sort of a cubicle drone in office space or something, right? Not someone who is basically in literally the C-suite, which requires, I think, a different way of telling that specific story of the way that even very powerful men still pursue power fantasies that take them to ever more depraved levels. Hmm. 
That's a good point. I I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of twistiness of the narrative did work for me. And I, I think that's something just done for dramatic reasons, since he is, at least at the very start of the episode, the point of view character. So I think there was this that want to make the audience sympathize with him for a time before they turned it around on us. Uh, but I agree. And I actually had, I think it, now that I'm thinking of it, would have been more effective had he been a man with power or who felt like he had more power. There's also one other last thing that I wanted to mention because uh, I didn't get to talk about this as much in the article uh, and I kind of wish I had because it was on Polygon but Daly treats his crew the way that many toxic gamers will treat their teammates in multiplayer games Mm. as NPCs. They exist Mm. despite their obvious sapience, their obvious humanity to further his fantasy and his alone. And when you look at how Uh, toxic and abusive players in multiplayer games like Overwatch, but Mm -hmm. really name any MMO. They're defined by the fact that they are playing this multiplayer game, clearly advertised as such, that's the reason they're playing it, with a fundamental solipsism, acting as if they are the only real person in the universe. And everyone else is there to further their vision, their fantasy. You see this with raids, you see this with PvP, you see it in you know, competitive Halo or Team Fortress 2 style multiplayer, you see it in role-playing in online servers where people lose sight, sight of the fact that they have to be empathetic in order to get the best possible experience out of this because the whole point is that you've got multiple sentient people with their own needs, wants, dreams and desires moving together through this virtual space you have to cooperate and compromise and uh, daily was the perfect uh, fictional visualization of this and the the episode worked as a fantastic allegory for that exact tendency in gaming where the toxic player treats their fellow players as npcs who exist only to further their goals i've definitely seen it myself in MMOs. Uh, Riley mentioned World of Warcraft. It's a game (laughs) we both played for many, many years. And yeah, there is that element of treating other people like they're not real. Or even one of my least favorite statements is, it's just the internet, guys, or it's just a game, guys. Like, (laughs) Like the person on the other side of whether it's a game or Twitter or whatever isn't a real person and the things you're saying to them aren't being aren't something that they have to listen to and internalize uh so yeah I can definitely see that I mean I won't say I'm completely innocent of it although when I get mad and start feeling this way all of my toxicity stays in my home and I don't open my microphone or talk to people (laughs) to make them feel bad. I just say it out loud to myself to make Mm -hmm. myself feel better. (laughs) Why does everybody suck? (laughs) Uh, Riley, have anything to add to that? Um, No, I don't think I do. You guys have said it all so eloquently. I uh, I don't really have much else to say.
All right. Um, so we had one question that came in from the doc web and he said, I always hear Black Mirror brought up alongside the Twilight Zone. Do you feel it's comparable to Twilight Zone in terms of them both being reflective of the anxieties of their time? Or is it not a fair comparison? Oh, yes, I saw that question. And I thought it was very good. Uh, I think it's certainly worth asking now because I've in critical discussions of Black Mirror, I've often brought up the Twilight Zone. And it's mm. very deliberate. I think Charlie Brooker himself cited it as a clear influence. So the short answer mm -hmm. to that person's question is yes, I think that it's fair to compare the two and that they do both represent um, the use of horror to deal with deep-seated fears about our age. Um, in a way, the Twilight Zone was a bit more diverse because it wasn't pegged to this one specific theme like abuse of technology. Uh, it mm -hmm. dealt with that in its own way, but that wasn't what it was confined to. But they were all, all of the Twilight Zone episodes, to one degree or another, represented the nightmares of modernity, right? The, mm -hmm. the post-war consensus of ever-expanding prosperity and suburbia and so forth, being disturbed in one way or another, and I mean really disturbed. So... Yes, I think the Twilight Zone could definitely be fairly said to be that, and the Black Mirror being a modern counterpart to that. And it brings to mind an interesting critique that I heard, because uh, I read for my sins a lot of commentary on USS Callister. And one person, uh, I think it might have been on io9 in the comments, said that, Actually, USS Callister wasn't that great because the DNA machine that Daly used was completely unrealistic and therefore <laughs> you couldn't be scared of it the way that you could be scared of the otherwise more credible uses of technology in other episodes of Black Mirror. Now, leaving aside the fact that, like, there are a lot of technologies throughout Black Mirror that we are not even remotely close to getting and may never get. Mm -hmm. That completely misses the point of the series. It's not just about, well, this could really happen, which was, those mm -hmm. are themes that some episodes play with, like the National Anthem, which used entirely contemporary technology to make its point. But that's not the totality of the series. It is speculative fiction that asks what if and then in some degree mm. or other. And um, the DNA machine was just a means to that particular end. And in that sense, it was very much like the Twilight Zone, which was also not something that did a lot of particularly realistic things. It simply asked a really weird and potentially terrifying what if question and then explored that for its running time. And that's what Black Mirror does particularly well. It's not necessarily about realism. And at any rate, if you want to make the point about uh, there being you know, a technology villain, it's not the DNA machine. It's, in USS Callister, it's massively multiplayer games. That's the technology that you relate to the episode's horror through. 
not mm -hmm. this machine that will never exist. That's just a conceit to get to the meat of the episode. So that was a, coming a long way around, but I hope that that, <laughs> that sort of answers the question. The short answer is yes. Yeah. I, sorry, you're going to say something? Uh, I've never seen any Twilight Zone. So. Okay. <laughs> but that would be my first thought would be to compare the two, even just from what I've heard about Twilight Zone episodes. But yeah, sorry. I was like just like talking to myself. Okay. So I, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I also haven't seen a ton of Twilight Zone. I'm more just familiar with the stories of the episodes as opposed to having actually seen many of the episodes myself. Um, but yeah, I think they're definitely, it, it's, it's fair to compare them. I mean, there's some differences, like, um, I feel like the Twilight Zone tends to be a little bit more nostalgic for like a simpler time whereas Black Mirror doesn't seem to feel any of that it seems to just be going like okay we're going into the future this is what may happen there's not really any looking back now uh, but yeah I think it's the same sort of speculative thing looking at different um, different aspects Black Mirror with technology and um, Twilight Zone sometimes deals a little bit more in morality and things but yeah, I think it'd be fair to compare them. And I have to say, I am super looking forward to Jordan Peele making a new Twilight Zone series. Actually, maybe if we have that, mm -hmm. we don't we don't need any more Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah, I think that probably the best way to put it is that Twilight Zone was ghost stories for the atomic age, and mm. Black Mirror is a series of ghost stories for the age of Twitter. It's, <laughs> uh, and... Each works very well on that theme. I think that's a perfect way to put it. All right, so that will wrap up our discussion of Black Mirror. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for joining yeah, thank us. You. It was more than my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you or any of your work? So I don't really post much on Twitter anymore uh, for reasons that I think Black Mirror would understand quite well. <laughs> But my Twitter handle is at Quine underscore moon. That is Q-U-I-N-N-A-E underscore moon, like the celestial body. And you can also find my work at any number of outlets. Uh, you can support me on Patreon. Uh, you can find my work at Polygon, uh, Kotaku, uh, the establishment Rolling Stone, Glixel on Rolling Stone, and uh, Rewire, any number of other places as well. All right. So Google you would probably be, <laughs> <laughs> be a, a good if they want to see your articles. Uh, Riley, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Kaleri with an underscore. It's K-A-L-E-R-I with an underscore. And you can find me on Twitter at Josila underscore, or you can find me on YouTube where my channel is called Cannot Be Tamed. And if you have any feedback or questions for us, you can reach out at MediaMavensCast at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at underscore MediaMavens. There's also a forum for discussion of any of our episodes at cartridgeclub.org. And if you like the show, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 